This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the Blank Podcast, podcast where we delve into those difficult moments with some well-known guests. My name is Giles Pay Phillips, and with me today, in his kindness jumper, is Jim Daly. <laughs> hello, hello. Yes, uh, yeah. Kind Fest 2021 uh, hoodie. It's incredibly mm. comfortable. Uh, that is something that you and I are going to be involved with at some point. I don't know how much we can talk about it, but well, we can say we're involved, I guess. Yeah, we'll be doing a special pod from Kind Fest this year. Indeed. So definitely something to keep an eye out mm. for. You're also in your Kindfest. I am. Uh, they've sent us merch, basically, yeah. uh, in your Kindfest uh, t-shirt as well. So we are, we're very much promoting the Kindfest merch today. Yeah. Well, we're just promoting kindness in general. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, not a bad thing to promote, I don't think, at all. Um, how's your week been? Happy... Ha- you've had a birthday since the last podcast, so happy birthday. Uh, yeah, it feels like a long time ago. Uh, yes, thank you very much. That's very kind of you to say. I have had a birthday, and it was a very nice one. Thank you. Oh, good. Did you uh, get up to anything nice? I cooked a lot of curries and had some friends over, and we played shuffleboard. Oh, that sounds lovely. Yeah. Have you played shuffleboard? No. So, <laughs> but it sounds nice. It's become a tradition now. We have a bit of a curry night uh, with a few friends, and yeah, we get the shuffleboard out. And it's a it's a Dutch game. It's had of Dutch origin. Um, it's a long board. It's probably about mm, five foot long. And then you've yeah. got these um, little pucks, and then you've got four kind of. Um, slots that you have to try and get the pucks into and they're different points and it's it's you get a ma- there's a maximum score of one four eight um which no one got near that's so so like snooker but but uh, one out yeah um yeah more like bowling i suppose because you're trying to get the things in yeah there. i've yeah. googled it i can i can see um 
It's a long board. It's pretty well, big, isn't it? The Dutch have, yeah, the Dutch, it's a Dutch origin, but the Americans, so I don't know if you'll look what you're saying, the Americans, of course, have made it bigger, um, and the Americans have got much bigger boards, of course. Right. Uh, oh, I would. There's, there's an outdoor one. This is no offence to Americans, but, you know, obviously, the, you know, they do generally make things bigger. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's the bigger, the bigger boards are the American ones, but the Dutch, it's a very traditional Dutch game, and they have, like, little, like we have snooker, snooker rooms they have shuffleboard rooms i love that yeah i would i would love to come around and play at some point you'll be very welcome um it is actually very addictive and um yeah we we played for many hours um uh so yeah but yeah it's incredibly addictive it's one of those you know and and it was one of those things where everyone wanted to have a go at the end but i can imagine it's it's quite social as well you're all around Mm. there you know as with most kind of like because it almost looks like a bar sport kind of thing like you know it's exactly that kind of thing Mm. but it's more about the social sort of getting together isn't it it's basically piss taking so we like (laughs) like like running commentary on how shit everybody is (laughs) that's such a british way of playing Um, i feel the dutch but actually no they're probably not but But, um yeah yeah we keep shouting out um if you got a good score we'd shout out number wang i don't know if you remember um (laughs) yeah from michelin Michelin web Web. yeah oh that's number wang um (laughs) anyway sorry yes it was very nice anyway i hope you had a good week yeah i've had a good week yeah not too bad at all not too bad at all um haven't really done much what have i done oh we're living in temporary accommodation moment because i think we're done our house so that's all a bit intense but i'm sat in my cabin now in the garden watching the guys on top of the roof oh so you can just sit in there and watch observe watch it feels a bit doesn't it it's all checking up on them not (laughs) just the way that the the window is facing but now they're cracking on they're doing doing some great work so well they uh, have to because you're watching them every minute (laughs) of the day yeah (laughs) getting analyzed yeah now they're doing i think they're waiting for me to vacate get my car out for lunch they can go for lunch no you will crack on with your work they can't hear me you'll leave when i tell you (laughs) the bell is for me not for you um anyway yeah so anyway we've got a uh we've got a great guest oh it's so good so good what a great episode this was yeah it's um i'd say if you're an actor Mm. or of the acting persuasion i should say it's daniel mays sorry um or danny mays as he asked us uh, to call him um if you're an actor, there is unbelievable insight into the mm. world of acting here and, and some of the techniques. It is, even someone of me that's not, I say I'm not an actor, my agent which does bill me as one, um, which is obviously very generous. Um, but it is, yeah, someone that hasn't trained, hearing about some of the, the techniques he's talking about. Oh, my God, fascinating. Oh, so fascinating. The improvisation stuff. I mean, I'm a big yeah. fan of Mike Lee movies anyway, and I knew that there was a certain element, element to his movies. I didn't realise how to what extent that was. And yeah, obviously they, yeah. you know, it's a huge preparation to like start filming like six months of preparing to get to know those characters and not knowing certain elements about the characters, particularly big plot twists yeah. uh, was obviously kept under wraps, uh, you know, the kept as real secrets uh, between the actors uh, and they weren't allowed to discuss it and stuff. It's fascinating. It's really, yeah. Talk really, about it. Yeah. Yeah. I could listen to it for hours. Yeah, um, I so, I love all yeah. that kind of stuff. Like the 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 creative aspect of acting is 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 just learning the craft of it. You know, the actual yeah. pure craft, and it does. And I think on a movie like that, it was obviously like very pure, um, yeah. and and just real like hardcore filmmaking, and just amazing. Yeah, and that I know that was a sort of early on in his career as well. And obviously, he's gone on to do so much stuff. I mean, he he pretty much appears in 
most good stuff that you watch on TV. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, obviously yeah. been in Line of Duty, Dares, which was a fantastic um, drama on ITV alongside David Tennant, which was about Dennis Nielsen, the, ma- the mass murderer. Um, and yeah, and countless movies. Obviously, you talked about um, being in Tintin, and I know he's been in Star Wars, Rogue One, so like loads of big stuff. So it's a real privilege to have him on the podcast. Absolutely, and it was such a joy. And he, he's definitely... He's got one of those faces where you, you just recognise him because he's been in, yeah. in so much stuff. In fact, it tells a good story at the start of the podcast about yeah. being spotted at Leighton Orient <laughs> again yeah. against Arsenal. Um, some great stories. Oh, some brilliant anecdotes. Lots of name dropping, which we 100% encourage yeah. um, on this podcast. So it's an absolutely brilliant episode. And um, we won't tease you any longer. We'll go into it. Before we do that, though, let's let's read a couple of tweets out. Um, do you want to go first? Yes, I've got one here from K- Karen Good to Talk. And she says, Blank Pod is a fantastic podcast to follow. It will lift you, make you laugh, cry, and you will relate to a lot of the topics. So go on, and as they say, wherever you get your podcasts, follow Blank Pod. Well, that is a very nice endorsement. Thank you. That was beautiful. Yeah, well, that was that was like advert copy. That was fantastic. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, I've got one here from uh, Sarah, a.k.a. Welsh Star. Love that. Um, and it's basically, she quote tweeted me because I, I tweeted you a, a happy birthday message a few days ago. Oh, and she said, I love, ah, oh, you're welcome. Um, I love this picture of you guys and really nice to see behind the scenes being such an avid Blank Pod fan. Well, thank you, Sarah, for being a fan. And in fact, the photo is actually from our first ever Blank recording, which is actually in your house. Yeah, in my conservatory. Um, yeah, that was that was a long time ago. But yeah, yeah. we look Three very happy in that that image. Well, that was the moment, I think, that we realised... Or we we might be onto something here. Yeah, so I think we. I think uh, I think we're talk. We're either then talking to who are we talking to in that photo? So is it Warren? It's either Warren Dudley, yeah, Dan Chute or Lindsay Galvin. So did we? Do, did we do all three on the same day? We did. Yeah, hardcore. That was yeah. a free free days, free in one day. Yeah, we do look very happy. We do yeah. look very happy. It's been a happy. It's been a happy journey, hasn't it? It has, and continues to be a very joyous and happy journey. Um, none more so than this episode today. Absolutely. Right. Let's crack on with it. This is, uh, the fantastic Danny Mays on the Blank Podcast. Now, listeners to the podcast, regular listeners to the podcast will know that Jim and I are avid crystal palace supporters and right, that, uh, this is the end of the podcast I'm gonna just... <laughs> <laughs> i did wonder this is ever. my opening gambit i did wonder if we would be ending very quickly um and jim uh on a regular basis will try and uh crowbar in some sort of football metaphor so i thought we'd probably be a good place to start with football because am i right in saying that you are an avid Leighton orient fan I am indeed. Before I talk about Orient, though, I'm going to do a shameless name drop because last night, <laughs> please last do. night, I was uh, in a restaurant with the one and only Ian Wright, who <gasps> started oh his career at um, Palace, didn't he? Yes, yep. he yeah. did. He did. And then yeah. went on to Arsenal. He was plucked from obscurity, and I was just completely yeah. awestruck by him, really. And I was literally sat right next to him um, at the head of the table, and he was. An absolute delight, and um, 
it's amazing, isn't it, when you sort of meet these sort of heroes of yours in real life, and you kind of you just have to try and style it out. But he was so down to earth, <laughs> um, telling us all these stories about his past. He was just he was just brilliant. So yes, but I, um, moving on from Ian Wright, I am a Leighton Orient fan. Yeah, someone has that to is, be. Can I just say, Charles? I think that is the best name drop opening name drop we've yeah, had on the podcast good, yeah. yes well for us it is yeah. well it was <laughs> it was because i've got this show temple coming out so it was a big dinner to celebrate that so there was a few names there idris elba turned up as well i've even got oh, I'm, wow. I'm putting out all the names now aren't i i've got to pick that name up i just dropped that and uh, steve mangan and david williams were there and it was wow. just a really lovely evening and it was all put on by liza marshall our exec and mark strong so um it was just a lovely night. Ah, oh, amazing. Did you talk to Wrighty about football? Did that come up? Yeah, yeah. I, I asked him, I said to him, who was... I, I was asking him about, you know, his punditry, because he's a brilliant pundit, and who's his favourite yeah. one that he, he works with, and um, he loves working with Roy Keane, because they wind each other up so much. <laughs> Roy Keane's just brilliant yeah. TV, isn't he? Um, <laughs> But I did ask him, like, in terms of when he, in his playing days, who was the one manager that motivated him the most? And he said George Graham. Because he said George Graham would never, even when, like, right, he was on, a, like, a run of really amazing games and he was scoring goals, George Graham wouldn't necessarily heap praise on him. He would always just keep him sort of teetering on the edge of sort of, you know, giving him praise and just keeping him sharp, I guess. You know, without sort of, you know. That's an interesting way of the psychology of that, because I guess you, as as a humans, we're always looking for validation. Yeah. If you're kind of teetering on the edge of validation, you're always going to be seeking it. So maybe your performances keep, you know, you keep performing at a high level. Maybe, I think, I, I mean, I've had that with, um, I can relate to that as an actor with certain directors, you know, you, you, I mean, lots of actors are seeking validation all the time. What about me? Uh, And um, you do come across some directors who literally don't give you any notes or don't particularly praise you. Or one of those directors was the great Mike Lee that I worked with when I first Mm. started out. And he would be very... He would never really give you a compliment. If you got good acting, (laughs) if you got a good acting from Mike at the end of a scene, you knew you were doing pretty well. But it's good. It keeps you on your toes, doesn't it? It's um, yeah. It's a kind of I can see the sort of method behind it, I guess. Well, and actually, I guess is like we say we we like we need that validation. But how helpful is it sometimes in that in those circumstances? Just to, but you know, I mean, it's it, it's nice. But you know, as when you're in a scene or you're you know you're portraying a part, how helpful is it to be? I I keep I, being told how great you are. It's not that I like to be told how great I am. I really like to have that dialogue with a director or anyone that yeah, I'm working sure. with. I mean, the, in the past when people haven't said anything to me, as an actor, you feel like you're cast adrift on a raft somewhere in the ocean. and you're Because it's a huge amount of pressure to take on. You're there in front of a camera or you're standing there on stage in front of a whole packed out audience. And, you know, you just want guidance and a bit of reassurance that what you're doing works and... Um, the whole thing's going to come together. So I'm, I'm, I guess I'm one of those sort of people that likes as much dialogue as possible. Mm. And it's all about, you know, it's like a football and a manager, isn't it? It's about man management. It's about how you, I guess if I was a footballer, I'd have been one of those guys that wanted his arm, put their arm around me and, you know, 
keep telling me I'm, I'm doing all right. So, but everyone's different. Thank you for bringing it back to football. Yes, I very much appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Jim with his metaphors now, so that's great. <laughs> yeah, I'm the same though. I think as a creative person, I need that that reassurance. I guess, or it doesn't even have to be a lot. Sometimes, just even just to, you know, if I was if I was a player, I'd just need a thumbs up from the sideline, just like you, you you're doing okay. You're on the right course. Yeah, you know, don't don't panic. Yeah, because don't it, warm up. I mean, you need you do need that sort of dialogue. <laughs> you do need like a little thumbs up or whatever it is, and um. Yeah, but I mean, look, I guess the George Graham approach, you know, it certainly worked with Ian Wright, didn't it? I mean, he was um, mm. a phenomenal player, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Uh, yeah. yeah, still yeah. cut steep a bit that he left Palace, but it was 30, yeah. 30 how many ago. seasons? probably let it go. So how many seasons was he at Palace? <laughs> Only about seven, Ooh. seven or eight, I think. Oh, yeah, okay. seven, yeah. Helped us get promoted and then... Yeah, cup final got us to third in the league. Well, I say not just him. Yeah, there was, there yeah. Was some other. But it, it, uh, yeah. it was just <laughs> so, yeah. fascinating talking to him last night because I was asking him like, I mean, how on earth do you like sleep before a huge game? <laughs> how do you actually yeah. sleep before yeah. a cup final or a game for England? Or because I was saying, you know, like you see on uh, online, don't you, on Twitter and stuff, where if you're playing away and like the the rival fans let off fireworks, don't they, at three o'clock in the morning? That would really infuriate me. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's guess it's like how you conquer nerves, isn't it? How you and he said he never used to have any trouble sleeping before a big game or anything. So um he was pretty good at it. Well he but he came late mm. to the game, didn't he? So I think he, he by the right? time he got to Palace, he was twenty one or twenty two, I think. No, he was later than that, mate, he was about twenty five. Right. Was he? Oh wow, okay. Yeah. So even by then he was probably like, Fuck it, I'm just gonna enjoy the ride rather than maybe someone that's been through the Academy system and sort of yeah, he was. I think why we all loved him as a player was because he wore his heart on his sleeve, didn't he? He, he played in that yeah. game, didn't he? That one-all draw against Italy to send um, England to the World Cup. I think that was his defining yeah. England moment, wasn't it? Um, yeah. But he always had a beaming smile on his face when he played, didn't he? And he was like that last night. He's vivacious and outgoing. He was just a top guy. Brilliant. His, I don't know if you've heard his Desert Island Discs episode. Oh, I haven't, it's, no. It's so good. Oh, I'll check that out, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's really good, really emotional. But um, yeah, top man writing. Anyway, Leighton Orient, mm. um, big <laughs> Orient fan. Uh, how did you get to be an Orient fan? Well, I grew up in Buckersteel in Essex. Um, so I'm one of four boys and we were all, bar my older brother Johnny just above me, he's a West Ham fan. Everyone else in the in the house was sort of mad orient, and um, I didn't really have a choice. I was dragged there by my dad as a kid, <laughs> and um, I go back when I can. I haven't seen a game uh, for a long time, but um, I yeah, it was just part of our fabric, and it was the closest ground to where we grew up. And yeah, I mean, I've been through sort of thick and thin really with orient promotion and. Um, relegation and terrible owners and all that stuff. But I think mm. we've got a great manager now and things are sort of on the up and a good sort of new signings and everything. So it's, it's all looking good. That, uh, that must have caused some um, clashes at home. <laughs> Three Orient fans and one West Ham fan. Must have ganged up on him, surely. Yeah, no, I mean, Johnny was always from day one <laughs> a diehard Hammers, uh, Hammers fan. And he... Um, 
he wasn't going to be swayed from that, really. I mean, you get like, you know, if sometimes when West Ham's playing away, and it like a lot of those fans come over the O's, and that's what a lot of oh, London yeah. teams do that. Even if you sort of, I get asked all the time who you support and you say Orient. First of all, you, most people just laugh, and then they say, but they've always got a soft spot for the O's, haven't they? They're always, you know, like their sort of second London team. Yeah, I did. I, I did a feature on Orient back in my sort of journo days where I went down and watched a game actually and spoke to Joey McEnough, who's a legend. Yes. Um, and yeah, and the and the new the American owner guy, I can't remember his name, but he's really flamboyant. And I can't remember his name. Texan guy. Right. Um, but yeah, very very welcoming club. Really nice. Oh yeah, I mean it's club. a family orientated club. It's I mean it's a, the atmosphere down the Orient is always brilliant. You know. Um, and we've had some wonderful nights there. My my overwhelming um, moment with Orient was when they drew 1-1 against Arsenal in the FA Cup. And um, we got a replay at the Emirates. It was hilarious. It was a packed game and um, we managed to get tickets. And where we were sitting, it was me, all my brothers and a load of us. There was about 10 of us, if I remember. Uh, my brother sorted out the tickets and it was... Um, we were sitting right next to this tarpaulin, right next to the Arsenal fans. So we were literally, you know, like a stone's throw away from them. And Rosicki scored and they went 1-0 up really early on. And then I got clocked from the um, telly. Oh, yeah, you're that actor from the telly. And I just literally got nearly 90 minutes of abuse from these Arsenal fans. Oh, no. And I was sitting there. We were 1-0 down. It was absolutely horrendous. I just wanted to leave. And then Tahore got put through in the 93rd minute or something like that, and he equalised. And I've never... I've never celebrated a goal as much as that. It was just brilliant. I was jumping on the tarpaulin. I was giving it back to the fans. It was great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it, it, it got personal. That was a personal goal. Oh, yeah. I was getting, you're a terrible actor. You can't act your way out of a paper bag and all that sort of stuff. Um, but we got a replay. I think we got spanked 5-0 at the Emirates and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, it didn't end well for us, but it was a good adventure. <laughs> Oh, that's, yeah, it's a great moment. So, was did you ever have any kind of love of playing football? Did you ever see yourself as being? Oh, a yeah. Player? I mean, I that's what I wanted to be growing up. Like loads of kids. I um, the thing was, my two older brothers and my younger brother are all so much better at football than me. I listen. I wasn't bad. I used to play for a club, uh, Loughton Boys, uh, back in Essex. Um, and I was the captain of our Sunday league team. I played sweeper. I didn't have, I've never had any pace. I'm a very good passer of the ball and I could read the game. So I was sweeper at the back, which you kind of don't really have that position no. anymore in football, no. do you? Sort of, sort of bygone no. position. And, um, but my two older brothers were brilliant and my younger brother. So I didn't really have a choice. I was sort of thrown into that world. And, um, I mean, I was good, you know, but, but it was very clear early on that um, I think I did have a trial with my district and I just wasn't cut out. I wasn't good enough to become a professional footballer. Nowhere near good enough. So that dream very quickly died. And then I guess because I'm a, you know one of four boys, third in line uh, to the throne, it was about <laughs> you know trying to jump around and get yourself noticed about doing something else. And that, I guess that's where mm. the performing came into it really 
You know, I was yeah. always jumping around doing impressions and making people laugh and the class clown and all that sort of stuff. But I guess it was that thing of just because I knew I was never going to be a, a, as good a sportsman as, as my brothers. And we were we were sports mad. If it wasn't football, it was cricket. If it wasn't cricket, it was golf. Um, it was just a very fun-loving, boisterous and sport-mad upbringing, yeah. Because um, I was going to ask, because it, it, there's no... History is wrong phrase. History of acting or performing in your family is there? No, they can all act up a little bit, but <laughs> um, <laughs> we've had our moments. No, literally, no, no uh, history of anything like that. Um, maybe I'll go on. Who do you think you are? And find out that our great ancestors were, you know, I don't know, circus performers or something. But literally, nothing like that. No. So it was. It's kind of. It was a complete left field decision to do it anyway. Um, and, you know, you say you want to... I mean, and very early on, I wanted not be an actor. I was I was very much into sort of performing arts and musical theatre and that sort of stuff. So I ended up going yeah. to a local dance school, stage one in Essex, which then led on to Italia Conti. And then from there, I knew I just wanted to be a straight actor and, and went on to RADA. So, I mean, I guess in many respects, I was really lucky that I knew what I wanted to do very, very early on. Mm. I mean, some... That's what I try and say to my kids is like, just find your passion, you know, like find what path you want to take in life. Um, and I feel blessed that I, I'm in a job even now that today that I've, I get so much out of, you know, it's part of who I am. I, I mean, if I couldn't act, I wouldn't know what to do. I couldn't, I can't really do anything else. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? That idea of like knowing what you want to do, because I think for some people it, it it might not come to way later in life. It might not come at all. Like it's just one of those things. But I guess if you're really that kind of age and you know, then it's kind of lucky. I guess bit of a blessing. Yeah, and I I mean, and it's all it's okay not to know, isn't it? I mean, I'm not I'm not sort of putting it out there that everyone needs yeah. to find their vocation really early. And I um, I just think I got. I mean, you know, my mum took me to see Michael Jackson when I was a kid. That's really where it all started. I mean, it was a proper. Uh, light bulb moment. I had the the video and the CD in the Christmas yeah. stocking, so I was really into Michael Jackson. But then, then she got tickets and we went there. And I, I mean, my how old was I then? About twelve. And it was a proper light bulb moment. Literally, <clears throat> the end of Billy Jean when he's in a spotlight and he does that moonwalk across the stage. I was like, holy shit! Look, I mean, I couldn't. <laughs> I'd never, yeah, yeah. I'd never seen anything like it. I'd never been <clears throat> in a sea of people like that as well in Wembley. You kind of, you know, it's sort of sensory overload, isn't it, the whole thing? And that was it. I, I was, like, locking myself in the bedroom. I had the hat, the gloves, the socks, everything. <laughs> and it became <clears throat> it became my party piece. And I, um, what, you so know... You, how to, you did the moonwalk? Oh, Jim, I can... <laughs> I'm not going to do it now, but I can still throw some shapes. I still do my, I still do Michael Jackson on set when I'm, when I'm standing around. Um, there was a hilarious moment on when we were filming Des, but um, the Dennis Nilsson thing where I, anyway, we won't go into that, but um, that's where the whole book. I can say that was quite an intense show. It was an intense show. I guess that was a lot of the times he's in, probably you needed have, a bit of Michael Jackson. You have to bring some levity to these serious dramas, yeah. otherwise it's um. Yeah. 
it's horrendous. But uh, that's really where it all started, though, sort of performing like that, yeah. And it was, the, you know, that was my disco routine. I mean, whenever that song came on, all my mates would form a circle and um, that was it. Oh, that's incredible. I'm imagining that now. Um, the thing about the Michael Jackson stuff is, like, we've all seen, like, the moonwalk and, and the leaning thing and all these, like, hundreds of times. If you go on YouTube now and watch them, they're still mind-blowing, even now. Oh. It's mad. It's yeah, very difficult dancers, for me, you know, being such a huge fan of his, you know, and then there was that, obviously, the hmm. documentary. Uh Leaving Neverland, which I have to say, I, I I was in bits for a whole week <clears throat> after that. I couldn't quite get, I couldn't compute it. I still can't. I still can't. Mm. I still don't want to believe that because I, I, I honestly think, you know, if those two guys were lying, they're the best actors I've ever seen. It was utterly convincing because mm. of all the, the detail in it and the content. Um, it was incredibly raw. Um mm. So that is so it's such a when you have sort of hero worship like that, yeah. and and that is then the rug is pulled from you. It's 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 very very difficult to <clears throat> to understand and get your head around. But in terms of seeing him on stage when I was twelve, I'd never seen anything. I mean, to this day, the greatest ever live performer I've ever seen in my life. And the and it wasn't so much the man; it was the dancing, the thing that really yeah yeah attracted me. Do you know what I mean? I've never seen anyone move like that. I mean, when you see him do the side moonwalk or the robotics or whatever it is, it was just, it's just, you're right. When you look back at footage now, it's still mind-blowing. Yeah. This is this is where our lives are very different, Danny, because my first concert was uh, Cliff Richard. And, <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> he didn't do any moonwalking that I can remember. No Hi, robotics or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah. But you took up tennis. And, <laughs> yeah, exactly, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, not quite the same. But I can... I can Definitely imagine being that age, as you say, the sensory overload of watching that kind of thing and, and, and the impact it having. Yeah, I could, it, it, I would have been the same, I think. Yeah, and I, so, yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's the weird thing, isn't it, when people are cancelled, when, when, when performers are cancelled, or it's like, it's that question, isn't it? Can you separate the yeah. controversy from the artist can you yeah and i still listen to his music now do you know what i mean i because I, I love the music and i um it's a tricky thing isn't it i mean you think of people like um mm. you know the kevin spaces of this world like i mean an absolutely mm. top draw phenomenal actor and you and there's part of me that's sad that you're never gonna see that person perform again um that's kind of hard to get your head around that isn't it yeah yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. Yeah, because you know, again, such a great body of work, mm. but then there is this juxtaposition of what you know. But anyway, Jim, it's us again, and we want to tell people about one of our favourite podcasts, Soundtracking. Yes, it is a weekly podcast that talks about the glorious relationship between music and film in a way that is totally accessible to all levels of film fans. Hosted by the wonderful Edith Bowman, who has been a guest on our podcast, of course, every episode has its own unique journey and the conversation is so intimate you feel like you're in the room and part of it. From directors, actors, writers, producers, composers and music supervisors, there is something for everyone in the more than 260 episodes available. 
ever. That is with Bradley Cooper talking about preparing for A Star Is Born. Sophia Coppola on the musicality of Bill Murray's performances. Jamie Dornan on his big beach singing and dancing number. Hilda Gutnertotte on her award-winning score for Joker. Or Quentin Tarantino. Well, just talking about music, there are literally hundreds of conversations to enjoy. Coming up, Edith has Hans Zimmer, Reggie Yates, St. Vincent, Chloe Zhao, Paolo Sorrentino and Kenneth Branagh. So some fantastic guests that I can't wait to hear from. Search for Soundtracking with Edith Bowman wherever you get your podcasts. So musical theatre was something that you were interested in doing. So were you? was there stuff at school that you were performing? Was there... Did the school put on musicals and stuff that you were? Well, I mean, I ended up. I was. Yeah. A, I ended up at uh, Italia Conti. I, I auditioned for Conti's in my second year uh, of secondary school. Yeah, yeah. And I and I auditioned. And I got in, and I didn't go because <laughs> I um, just shit myself. <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> I can't do this because so, I couldn't imagine me jumping on the central line going up to a school in london i just i just panicked and i and we decided to not take the place um having been offered it and then something was just nagging away at me and then i think my mum encouraged me to audition again and they and it and so i eventually did go in the third year of secondary school um and it was great you know i you know from doing michael jackson dancing you do jazz ballet tap singing everything you know it was it was just a wonderful experience concerts and so yeah i mean i would perform in you know we do countless um musical theater numbers you know uh but i can't really remember off the top of my head now but it was brilliant i mean you know stage schools like just packed full of all of those extrovert kids from their normal schools that are it's just full of class clowns really and everyone wanting to be centre of attention but it was a lot of fun yeah sorry Danny I was going to say did you did you feel like you know that it's the thing we say a lot now you know finding our tribe but did you find that you you know you really met a lot of people that you had sort of common things in common with and like-minded oh yeah yeah I mean it was it was um Everyone was like-minded. Everyone was outgoing and funny. I mean, God, some of the uh, some of the stories I could tell. It was just wonderful, and it was what was great about Conti's is that you had a brilliant sort of academic school there as well, run by Cliff Vote, who was an amazing headmaster. So you would go there, you know, in your blue uniform up on the on the central line, and you'd go there and you'd do like a morning of vocational stuff. So you'd do tap, ballet, singing, and then you'd have lunch. And then you do your maths and your English and all those academic side of things. And an amazing art teacher there, Jane Brown Todd, that was brilliant. I'm a keen artist as well. So that really ticked the box. And on, and on top of that, as the school's going on, you had an agency at the top of the building. It was essentially a big block of flats on Goswell Road near the Barbican. So we didn't really have any outdoor space, which was quite tricky. So you just had kids running around the building and stuff. But um, that was the weird thing about it which was very different to RADA in that because RADA didn't have a working agency. So when you're at Conces, you're essentially a working kid. So you had like uh, mm. Sylvia Young's was a sort of another stage school around, that's obviously still going now, um, <clears throat> loads of other places. But, I mean, that was kind of like a weird thing having an agency there because 
there was always this pressure on is your name on the notice board if your name was there you'd be running straight up there and but mm. I had some great little mm. gigs early on I mean I remember being um, we were the young take that we danced with take that in the children's <laughs> Royal Variety performance 1992 at the Dominion Theatre and oh, yeah man. and they were just they were just kind of starting out they weren't as big you know they hadn't broken through completely because I remember they only had a, like a handful of fans in the alleyway <laughs> next to the Dominion. But we, we, we yeah, we, we did It Only Takes a Minute Girl, and they were great. They were just really down-to-earth, lovely fellas. Um, and we were always just joking with them, saying, why are you called Take That? You should be called Gary in the Jockstraps or something, or like all these sort of things. <laughs> but they were, they, were, they were brilliant. It was, um, yeah, so we did, I, you know, Children's Royal Variety shows and all this sort of stuff, yeah. But it's a weird I thing to sort so of we, be like a jobbing, working performer when you're mm. that young. You know, it's... Does it give you a, a... Sorry, mate. Does it give you a sense of, you know, what it's then like to be a, a proper working actor and, and the highs and the lows, the pitfalls, you know, all that kind of stuff that comes with, with starting out young, but then... Yeah, it's... I mean, there's... I guess there's a big part of me that thinks... Because you you have to cope with rejection very early on. And I think, you know, in a way it's unfair to put kids through that at that age because, I mean, it's not rocket science that, you know, kids that are, you know, you know kid performers that don't eventually go on and build a successful career in adult adulthood. I mean, it's because I think it's sort of, it does you in a lot of the time. I mean, that, there's that constant no, you know, and rejection, and there's like an actor's life is is pitfalls, isn't it? It's highs and it's lows, and it's a roller coaster. Um, the highs are really high, and the lows can be really low because you're it's you. You are. I'm, I'm not selling insurance or hovers. I'm the product, and you have to learn very quickly to just yeah. put your armor plating on and not take rejection personally at all but I mean that's easier said than done you know especially if you really mm. want a job or you're you're you know you really feel like you you can offer something in the role when it doesn't come your way that's a really to this day you kind of it's difficult to stomach but for a kid to go through that um that's a really tough ask you know you've got to be incredibly re- resilient and a lot of the time kids aren't yeah what what are you like now with rejection because i i'm gonna tell you tell you guys something happened to me this week or not last week i so i do a lot of like comedy content and stuff and all that kind of stuff and it's constantly pitching the whole job is basically pitch grift pitch 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 and a lot yeah. of those and i pitched to one company and they said i did a sort of a test a test video for them and they were like oh this is great and then i kept asking like you know what's next what's next and they came back and said oh, we, nah, we haven't got the budget which is a classic rejection we haven't got the budget yeah we haven't got the space at the moment, etc. etc. I was like, okay, fine. And then I saw this week they were saying we need to do, we need to do more stuff. And then they pitched the guy was like tweeting out one of the ideas that I'd sort of or a similar idea to what I'd pitched to him. And part of me was like, you fucking cheeky mm. bastard. <laughs> and I thought in that moment I was like, I've got two <laughs> options: either I go catatonic and be like, what the fuck, or I just swallow it and let it go. And I'm still deciding. No, I'm going to swallow it. Um, <laughs> but it's it's hard. <laughs> You know, those moments are really hard. Either one's hard. Either of those decisions is hard, man. Uh, You have to swallow it and move on, don't you? You have to... As someone said to me, you know, the great thing to do with rejection is use it as fuel, you know? Kind of take it on the chin and think, uh, I'm going to come back stronger. 
next time because it's all relative isn't it it doesn't really matter how I mean people might listen to this and think why is Danny Mays moaning about he, he doesn't stop working but you know lots of all of us are looking at the food chain aren't we and thinking why am I not as doing as well yeah. as that guy yeah um, but use it as fuel I think that's the best that's the best advice someone gave to me and you know swallow it and use it and hopefully move on and something will come around the next time but rejection yeah. is rejection. It's ne- it's never nice, is it? It's um, um, but unfortunately, it's just part of the job. Mm. Yeah. So, were there moments when you were, you know, when you were at Aliconti that where there were jobs that you might have been going up for and you didn't get? So I say that I say the thing that hurts me even to this day now I've talked about my <laughs> love of Michael Jackson so get this there was a rumour that came round do you remember when he performed in the Brits that famous moment when Jarvis oh, Cocker yeah, yeah. stormed the stage yes, yes. <gasps> yeah yeah and uh, Earth Song Earth wasn't it? Song was it that's Earth it song? yeah that was yeah. it and um, there was this rumour going round that there's going to be open auditions to be the kids in Earth Song for the Brits and uh, I couldn't believe it. I was like, you're absolutely kidding me anyway. And there, there was me. And then all of a sudden, the names went on the notice board. And my name wasn't on there. Oh. And I'm like, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was like, um, I, I couldn't quite get my head around it. And I went up to the to the agency and I saw, and I went and knocked on Gaynor Stewart, I'm going to name her because uh, I don't care anymore. <laughs> I knocked on her office and I went in and I said, um, now you know, I mean, I'm asking you to put me on, on the list. You know how much of a fan I am. You know I did Michael Jackson to get in a place here in the first place. And she just said, no, we just don't feel you're right for it. And I couldn't, I just, to this day, I can't quite get my head around that. Um and she stuck. She stuck to her word, and she said, "I never got a chance." I mean, I think it was the, the kids that eventually got it were a mixture of lots of different stage schools, but there was definitely kids from Conses that ended up performing with him. Um, oh, I mean, I, I, I can I? I mean, that's just the, the kids kicking the teeth. I should have thrown the Absolutely. towel in for, for the uh, performing. <laughs> uh, being an I'm, I'm just imagining you um, leaving her office doing the moonwalk. <laughs> <laughs> Playing some shapes as you leave yeah. the room. Gaynor <laughs> Stewart, I'm naming and shaming you right here on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah you well, must, okay, if, you miss, been, if you're listening, you're, you must have been like, yeah. how, how can I not be right? For, I couldn't be more right for I this. Know. <laughs> I know. Maybe she, she, maybe she had a problem with me. I have no idea, but I'm... Um, or they were just, I don't know what happened, you know. Cancel and continue, as they say. A, well, swallow it, as you say. Swallow it, yeah. Um, that's a pretty bold thing to do, though, at that age, isn't it? I think I would have definitely just gone and, like, gone home and cried for a week. Uh, but that yeah, is no, I went quite to bold see her. to go up there. Yeah, I mean, I, had, I, I remember having the bit between my teeth for going up there and just saying, I, I, I'm just literally waiting there and then went in and knocked on the door and... And had it out of her in the office. I mean, how old was I there? I don't know, like 14, 15 or something. Um, and that was it, yeah. Yeah, it was quite bold of me, wasn't it? <laughs> I probably I left it. in floods of tears, moonwalking, as you say, Charles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So from Italiconti, you went to Rada. So you, how, 
was there a transition? Because obviously you said you were into sort of more musical theatre, but you said then you sort of started to realise that maybe straight acting was more your thing. Did you discover that during that time at Italia Conti? Yeah, I mean, because I... You know, was there a moment or anything? Yeah, so I did, I did my GCSEs and then went on did A-levels because the art teacher was so incredible. and So did um, theatre studies and, and art A-level. But it was, you know, it was just becoming... Incre- and I was getting really into sort of independent American cinema and I was watching the Pacinos and the De Niro's of this world. And I remember then I was, you know, I mean, I was... <laughs> Bunking off classes, going up the West End to what? I mean, I bunked off to watch um, Pulp Fiction. But, so did yeah, I. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I bunked off college to watch Pulp Fiction. <laughs> yeah, my mate Alex had already seen it, and he went, "Come on, we'll 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 miss double ballet." <laughs> <laughs> and we, we, we went up the West End to watch it. Yeah, and um, just getting into really like like you know the Paddy Considines of this world and Shane Meadows films mm. and really just getting into it and thinking, I just... And I, I recognised early on that, you know, it was great longevity in, in an actor's life. You know, a, a dancer's life is like mm. a footballer, isn't it? It's very short-lived. Yeah. Incredibly intense and amazing when it's happening, but you can't do it forever. Whereas an actor, I was kind of like fascinated where you could just go on and on and on and it's this sort of mystique of it and how deep you can get into character and... And so um, I had an amazing improvisation teacher, Dennis Noonan at Italia Conti, who was a huge influence on me and really helped me early on. And then he said, you know, like, if you really are serious about it, maybe start thinking about, um, you know, proper drama school and giving yourself that proper foundation to sort of eventually go on and build a career and I followed Dennis's advice and rather foolishly I only I, I should have auditioned for all of the drama schools the Centrals, Lambdas, uh, Guildhall and I went no if I'm going to go to drama school I only want to go to RADA so I only auditioned there which is a bit really foolish of me um, but lucky enough I, I did you know it's very difficult to get into RADA it's like audition recall mm. I think another recall and then an all day workshop um, and then I remember I was driving in my mini and my mobile phone went one of those brick phones and it was <laughs> Nick Barter the principal of RADA saying congratulations Danny we've offered you a place and it was amazing so I'd gone from I always describe Conti's as a bit sort of tits and teeth, you know, it's from the outside in. Yeah. Whereas drama school was just com- like polar opposite. It was from the inside out and it was Stanislavski and it was, you know, being introduced to voice work and all these different playwrights, different forms of theatre. Mm. It was just an incredible education and an amazing journey with incredible, you know, pupils and classmates from totally different sort of walks of life you know from different countries and different upbringings and um it was really at RADA that I really dug in and stripped all of the walls of information and it gave me this brilliant foundation you know there's always this debate of whether actors need to go to drama school or not and it's whenever young actors ask me I always say look it's it's the best education you can have and it's a great foundation to you know build a career from you don't have to do that, you know, because I think, you know, drama school, you have that instinct and that sort of initial talent that gets you through the door. But I think drama school just adds to that. So it's it's really been, it benefited me anyway. It's interesting you mentioned, was it Dennis there, Dennis? Dennis Noonan, uh, yeah. 
because it comes up on the pod quite a lot of these ideas of these sort of these these people in our lives that can just help push us towards this thing you could call them mentors maybe but like it comes up so often on the pod someone will say there was this one teacher there was this one person that helped me and it's just funny you mentioned him i just saw the same sort of thing and he's sort of just pushing you towards uh, what you do now do you know what i'm just gonna let my dog in the door because she's scraping <laughs> of course man yeah yeah you'll probably be thinking right in you get thinking who's what's that scraping at the door sorry um dennis is a dear friend of mine to this day and he was kind of like a maverick teacher and um just brilliant because it was improvisation classes that was the thing that really sort of lit the fuse for me and dennis was this great teacher that would just um Get, you get rid of your inhibitions with him. He he was a person that put you in a space with no um, preconceived ideas. My my dog's chasing her tail now and growling. <laughs> what? what? Shh, sorry, man. she's just had a. It's alright, man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's not a great review, is it? It's not a great review of the other podcast so far. <laughs> Sit down, though. She's a toy Maltese, and she's just literally had a bath, and now she's going crazy. Can we say um, Come here. Look. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't want to say yes. Yeah. Oh, hey, oh, hello to Missy. How cute. Hello, Missy. Right, you're going to calm down oh, now. Hey, Missy. You go and sit on your thing over there. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's amazing how many dogs we have on this yeah, podcast. Yeah, I love it. Love it. Should calm down there, man. I'm going to have to take you out. Wait, well, sorry, guys. Don't worry. It's cool, man. Don't worry. Don't worry. Drama. Amazing. <laughs> How many incidences of, of you know Zoom chats does that happen now? Uh, oh, real life comes crashing through. Uh, no, Dennis was brilliant, and he was just one of those teachers that allowed you to take risks and um, really get rid of your inhibitions. And it, it was just a brilliant teacher. Yeah, it's funny. It's, I think improv. Sorry, no, sorry, I was going to talk about improvisation. I think you probably were as well. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. Uh, well, I was going to say, yeah, the improvisation is so great. Um, again, there's something that comes up a lot, actually, with, with, with creatives in general, that how great improvisation is and how little attention is paid to it a lot of the time. Um, I don't know if you did any of that stuff at Rod. I'm sure you probably did some. But, yeah, I mean, I, I had a guitar teacher that would just, you know, I went there thinking I was going to learn, get grades and stuff in guitar, and he was like, no, we're just going to do improvisation. And it taught me so much. Yeah going forward it's just such a wonderful thing improvisation and just feel like it yeah it doesn't always get the props it deserves i think it really i mean even to this day when you're you know you're working in on a tv show or whatever it is and it's it's there's always an element in my head where i'm i'm going obviously you have to learn the lines and do the Mm. groundwork for that and that's obviously essential but 
I think increasingly now when I'm on set, I kind of, there's, I just leave about 15% of it of completely, I don't know what I'm going to do with it. Because you have to leave yourself completely open in the moment because you don't know where you're going to be shooting, you don't know what the location's going to be. And it's about just leaving yourself free and open to the environment that you place yourself in. And, you know, sometimes you can just improvise a line or, or change things up in the moment and just keep it fresh because... You know, it's just a healthy approach to work, I think. Um, and impro is definitely something that that, that adds to adds to the whole experience. Yeah, I think I think to be honest, that's something that people in all walks of life or all careers can do as well. I think the idea of leaving yourself open to something mm. you maybe can't control it can be quite freeing. My example of improv wasn't wasn't quite the same. Based, but <laughs> my daughter's got a cold at the moment, and um, she's two. She's called Maria, and she's yeah. obsessed now with when we go to bed that she doesn't want any of the stories of the multiple books we've bought. She wants, uh, and in her words, girl Ria, which is girl called Maria. She wants a story basically about herself. Um, so every night I have to make up a story. Oh right! Her. But that's essentially improv. That's and last great. night it went yeah, on yeah, for a long time. Not very well, but yeah, that <laughs> is improv. Yeah, you do one line of the story, and then you then you can offer it over to her, and you build the story together. That's a really good way of, of doing it, isn't it? I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, I, at the yeah, moment yeah. I do. Yeah, I get her doing good. one word, but yeah, I could get her to. Uh... All right, she's only two. Yeah, she's yeah, only two, exactly, Daddy. Yeah. Come on, Maria. <laughs> yeah, more than that. at least give me a sentence. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I remember watching that. You know, like a silly thing on YouTube where it was like the greatest, like the top ten greatest ever improvised moments in movies. You know, you think of the De Niro in Taxi Driver in front of the yeah. mirror and stuff like that. Um, it's great. I love all that stuff. Brilliant. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I was going to say, obviously working on projects now, I, I, I guess some filmmakers or directors are better, or, or sorry, are more open to that kind of stuff than others, I guess. Is, is that the case? Or are most directors okay about a little bit of improvisation? Uh, it completely depends on... Um, the director. I mean, some. I think you know, the majority of directors is like this. The script is sacred, you know, and mm-hmm. you know, particularly yeah. if it's a serious subject matter. Like I've mentioned the Dennis Nielsen thing recently. It's, it's mm. like you know, you can't really. You have to sort of um, be true to that because it's because of what mm-hmm. the content of the whole piece. But um, you know, like I, I mentioned Mike Lee. I mean, the, all, all of Mike Lee films. Yeah. I've done two films with Mike. All of that comes from improvisation. Um, you know, we have, you know, for Vera Drake, for example, we had six months to work on that film to build that character. And so just literally, we, we, we were in a, a flat in, in Crouch End in a disused hospital. Me, Phil Davis and Melda Stoughton and Alex Kelly. And we would just, we would improvise for hours and hours and hours as that family in the 50s. And... Um, it all, it, you know, and you you never improvise on camera, but you know it's all bedded down from improvisation. Improvisation. That's where it comes from. So that's why there's so much. When you ever see a Mike Lee film, there's so much believability in it and nuance and emotion, because it's um, it's completely organic. It all comes from the actors. Um, so every director's different, yeah. I mean, you know, some directors don't, just don't... Just say what you want to say. Don't worry about the script and, <laughs> you know. So it's, it's, I think... I, I can imagine, though, with, 
Sorry, go on, Danny. I was going to say that that must be really exciting, though, right? Just really pouring yourself into a character. I know it's obviously a long process, six months oh, yeah. time to be working on something, but but really exciting, I should imagine. Oh, I mean, I, to this day, I've never really got as... I've never had um, ownership of a character as much as I've had with working with Mike Lee. You know, it's it's... I mean, you do things with Mike where you, you know, you get into you get into character at, at six months old, you know, and you're rolling around on a carpet with the other actors, and I'm in characters wow. six months. Wow. And then one, and then two, and then I mean, just really mind blowing techniques to get you into it. And I think what it gives you, like I mentioned, it's it's ownership. It it actually gives you imagery in your head that you can just draw upon. And it's, it resonates on such a deep level. I mean, the whole Vera Drake thing was just, just utterly mind-blowing to me because Imelda Staunton from day one, uh, I literally bumped into Imelda out having a run in Highgate Woods the other day, but that's another story. <laughs> I jumped out, I saw Imelda and her husband Jim because she's playing the Queen at the moment, and I saw them. I sort of jumped out the bush pretending to be a um secret service man saying there's a bomb scare <laughs> well, anyway but she Amelda from day one knew that she was a backstreet abortionist but you you only know what your character knows so that whole secret was kept from the family oh we wow. didn't know so we had a massive like it, this improvisation went on for about, I don't know, eight hours. That nut, The nuts and bolts of that film where you have the engagement party and the police turn up, that mm. was a huge improvisation um, wow. that we suddenly were sitting down, Eddie Marzan was there and Adrian Scarborough, and there was a knock on the door, and then all of a sudden there was the police, and she got dragged away, interrogated, and then, and you're never allowed to come out of character till Mike or one of his assistants tells you to come out. So we had to stay in that flat smoking woodbines while she was getting interrogated, and then Phil Davis came back and sat us down and says, "I've got something to tell you. Your mum's been helping young girls out," and we were like, "What?" And it was it was like a physical. I can only describe it as having had like to that point, five months rehearsal of being in this loving, gregarious, loving life family to then be told that your mum was a battery abortionist. It was just like, I remember my, literally my stomach falling away. Wow. It was like someone <laughs> ripped my heart out and um, you, you, you experience that and then you take that on board when you actually come to eventually film it in front of the cameras. So that's why that, I mean, that, I mean I, the, that moment in the film when the police turn up, it's like the film just stops. I don't know if you remember that moment. It just sort of yeah, freezes yeah, like, on Imelda's yeah. face. And it's like, it's like the, 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 the film pauses, but it's just a phenomenal bit of screen acting from her. It's like her whole life just stops in that very moment. But they're the sort of magical moments you get, and I think you wouldn't have got those magical moments if you hadn't gone through that process with Mike. Yeah. That, that is absolutely fascinating hearing yeah. how that is that is absolutely incredible i could listen to that for for hours but i, I guess as well when it when you're doing something that that's that i mean that intense and that deep and, and improvised you're reliant on i guess the people you're working with as well so you you know mm. so that must feel very exciting when you realize oh wow i'm in a cast with other people that are really getting this as well and you're able to sort of bounce off them that must be very exciting as well. Yeah, the the weird thing with a Mike Lee film is though you're never allowed to dissect. 
if you've done an amazing improvisation together, you are forbidden to then sit down and talk to your fellow actor about how good that improvisation was or what happened when you did that. I really enjoyed that bit you did. You only are allowed to talk one-on-one with Mike because you only know what your character knows. So there are really sort of strict... It's a strict sort of regime in many ways, um, Mm. but it produces the goods, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, whatever project you're on, I think you can feel it in your bones if it's going to be something special. Occasionally you think this is going to be, you know, the next best thing from sliced bread and it doesn't turn out to be, but invariably you you sort of know, do you know what I mean? It's sort of, you can just sort of feel it in the air. And yeah, you know, if you're working with great actors, you can just bounce off them and, and sort of, you know, draw from each other. You know, I remember we keep talking about Des, but I mean, to, to sit across from, Jason Watkins and David Tennant on that project was, mm. I mean, even before you come to the project, you know, you you know, you know their their credits, you know what they've done in the past. It forces you to sort of up your game, you know, which is a really healthy yeah. way of approaching it. Yeah, that must be really. Yeah, and it makes it very real as well. I was going to say it's very. You, you really feel like you're in that room with those people that moment. You know, that that intensity comes out. Yeah, I mean, I had, I had a ringside seat opposite David Tennant when he was in that interrogation yeah. when they'd shot on me and then the camera was I'm next to the camera feeding him his lines and I remember seeing this footage of Dennis Nilsson talking from his prison cell about how he dissected mm. bodies and they lifted that speech and put it in the scene in the interrogation you know because I, I was pouring over the research for that I've read the books and there's mm. countless documentaries on there's a brilliant documentary on Netflix, which is, I think, recently been released, which is actually the best one out of the lot. Yeah, I've seen that. I've really that. good, that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I can remember David getting into character and going into that speech, and I was just like, the hairs on the back of my neck were standing up. He was really channeling something quite eerie. Yeah. It was chilling to what? It was really chilling to sit across from. Yeah, brilliant. Amazing um, to David. Uh, it's, it's funny, you're, you're describing this stuff so perfectly that I'm so, I, I feel like I'm getting those feelings as well from the way you're describing it which is which is fascinating really but that thing about not being able to talk to your uh fellow cast members about the improv that must be so difficult surely most actors do want to sit down and dissect stuff and talk about how great that was not being able to do that yeah i mean i mean that 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 really long improvisation that i've mentioned um i was living on my i'd split up with a girlfriend i was living on my own in in a flat in bucker still and i do remember just um it was weird because you couldn't talk about it. And then yeah. I was really, really upset. Like a lot of us were really, it was like being hypnotized in a weird sort of way. And we'd suddenly come out of it and we're all sort of upset. And, and in Mike said, just go home and we'll, we'll talk about it in the morning. And but I do remember that drive back and I, and I was living on my own. I didn't really have anyone to talk to about it. And so it, it's, it was a bit of a, yeah kind of deep experience yeah sounds intense very intense very intense but i mean i was a younger actor then i think the older you get you kind of you know life gets in the way a bit more now doesn't it yeah. i've got two kids and a dog <laughs> right <laughs> as you've heard um you know i'm much better at you know you leave drama school you're this sort of intense young actor you know um 
giving it everything, double barrels and everything. And I think the older you get, you 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 learn. And that is another thing that Mike Lee taught me is always try and separate the two. There's the character and there's the actor and don't get those two things confused. And I think I'm much better now at leaving work at work and then going home and just being um, normal, whatever that means. Um, because, you know, I've played a lot of crazy characters, haven't I? I mean, if I... If I was like a sort of intense, proper method actor, I wouldn't, I wouldn't walk out the door. Oh, I wouldn't man. be able to get up most mornings. The characters <laughs> I've played. Yeah, I was going to say because there's you hear sort of stories of I know people like Peter Sellers who was who was very method and would stay in character for a long time. He even married Britt Etland when he was still in character, I think. Yeah. Um, and really? then sort of <laughs> came. Yeah, yeah. Apparently so. And um, like six months later, realised that. He wasn't. He wasn't in love with her because wow. he was still kind of in power. Yeah. So it does happen. You know, like you know, a lot of meth actors like Daniel Day Lewis and stuff are very intensely and and obviously can't work all the time either because you're so ingrained in those characters that you know you can't yeah. just keep moving from role to role because you know and you want to you know. For, I guess for most actors, they want to keep working and trying new things. I mean, and, I, and doing I, I have projects. nothing against that approach to it because I always no yeah yeah time. I always believe like whatever you need to do to get you into it. That, that's your process, mm. isn't it? Um, I mean, it's just phenomenal. If you you, you think of the, the, the performances from Daniel Day-Lewis, like how oh, completely incredible. and utterly different he is from role to role, you know. You think of There mm. Will Be Blood and then you think of Lincoln, you know, like, I mean, oh. it's just... Um, yeah. He's kind of like on a different plane, isn't he? He's exceptional. Yeah. yeah. But you can see kind of why he doesn't do that many films because I can imagine that is... Quite full on. Yeah, yeah, I tell you, another. I tell you, uh, he's another. Uh, I'll just keep name dropping for you two today. <laughs> it's right, I was cool, doing. Uh, cool. <laughs> I just tell you this little story. I was doing a play at the Royal Court. I did loads of plays at the Royal Court starting out. I've done seven plays there, but I got a part specifically written for me by a brilliant playwright called Simon Stevens, and it was a play called Motortown, and it was all about a soldier coming back from Iraq, going back to Dagenham in Essex and trying to reintegrate himself back into his into society and his life again. And his girlfriend doesn't want to know, and he and he's com- he's completely unhinged. Um, it was a really incredible, intense, unforgettable experience. Uh, a wonderful play to do. Uh, but there was an actor in it called Richard Graham, who also was in Vera Drake. And uh, Richard went to drama school and his best friends with Daniel Day-Lewis. Uh, and he mentioned this in rehearsals and I was you know, asking questions about him, and blah, blah, blah. Um, and this play, there was no set. And um, there was just a big beam of light. It was like a boxing ring. So there was, and once you were in the light, you're in character. Outside of that box, you were just yourself. And you're encouraged by Ramin Gray, our brilliant director, to when the house lights are up and the audience are coming in, you can just look at the audience. You know, it's a kind of a weird sort of way of looking at it. But mm. so everyone was just relaxed. And then, and as I'm walking down the steps to the Royal Court stage, we get the beginner's call. And Rich comes out of his dressing room. Well, all right, mate, and we're walking down. And he went, ah, oh. he just casually goes, oh, my, my best mate's in tonight. And I went, oh, that's great. I went, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> I went, what? 
Daniel, I know it's you. Yeah, yeah, Daniel's in tonight. I went, fucking hell, Richard. You're just about to step out Don't on tell stage. tell me now. <laughs> you know, and I, I, might, I was the lead in it. My character didn't leave stage. It was like, it was an amazing thing. And um, I thought, oh, my God. And I was listening to me headphones like this. I was getting into character. Oh, my God. And I thought, I'm not going to look. I'm not going to look in the audience. I'm not going to look in the auditorium at all. And um, I thought, fuck, I'll look. And literally, he was sitting... Right, he was just about to shoot <laughs> There Will Be Blood. So he had this massive beard, right? And he was sitting slap bang in the auditorium and he had this fluorescent orange beanie on, if I remember, <laughs> with his arms folded, looking really intense, just looking like, yeah. like, right, come on, put on a show for me. And I was just like, <laughs> yeah. oh, my. Anyway, we smashed the show. It all went great. Oh, and I had the privilege oh, and honour of meeting him in the bar afterwards. And he couldn't have been more complimentary and nicer. It was just a really... Um, one of those moments, you know, as a young actor starting out thinking, that was a night I'll never forget. Yeah. Brilliant. That's wonderful, yeah. <laughs> I oh, love that. Yeah, because we always worry about meeting our heroes, don't we? But actually, most of the time, we found that with this podcast, you know, when you meet people that you really love and ins- they're inspired by, actually, yeah. they're really nice and it's a really good experience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think... It, it, you never know, do you? You never know. I mean, I think all the great actors have a great humanities as themselves, don't they? And that's the thing that always kind of bleeds through their performances. I mean, you think of like, you know, whenever I watch Tom Hanks being interviewed, I think, Jesus, he's like the nicest guy on the planet, isn't he? And he has great empathy in his characters he plays. Um, You know, I'm really great friends with Stephen Graham. Stephen Graham is like one of the most hardworking, empathetic individuals you'll ever meet. And that heart and soul always comes through his performances. Yeah. Yeah. He can pay me later. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking actually it's been an exciting period for British acting actually I think that you know yourself like you say Stephen Graham David Tennant Paddy Considine there's an array I'm, I'm missing lots of other names as well but an array of brilliant male actors coming out in the last few years and female ones of course yeah I mean God, we've always produced um, stalwart exceptional actors in this country haven't we I mean there's, a, there's that thing mm. where I, I think Particularly recently, I mean, there sort of seems to be a... Um, it's that American approach to acting where I think... I, I mean, I'm name-dropping again. Steven, I've worked with Steven Spielberg, and Steven Spielberg loves English actors because they do have that mm. training. You know, they, they a lot the script is sacred to an English actor, whereas I think a lot of Americans just don't adhere to that. It's, it's sort of they just will make it up as they go along, and I think there's a... You know, I think that's particularly Spielberg loves English actors for that very fact. Um, by the way, Danny, you can name drop or do as many anecdotes about famous as you want on the <laughs> podcast. It's, it's, it's positively yeah. encouraged. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I did. I did Tintin with Spielberg, which was one of those motion mm. capture films where you're um, you're in that funny green suit oh. with the, with the two hundred reflective yeah. dots on your face and the funny balls all over your body. Oh, amazing! Um, FIFA. I, I mean, t- and that was that was a fair few years ago now, and it was sort of motion capture was in its infancy. Really, we had 
the brilliant Andy Circus on that film playing Captain Haddock. So Andy was like, he's obviously the motion captain captured God, isn't he? Yeah, so yeah. Andy was a great person mm. to go and ask advice to. Um, and essentially, you know, that motion capture stuff is just being as big and expressive as, as possible, really. And then it's all rommed into a computer and they animate over the over the performance. But that was in terms was of name dropping, that, that was a big that was a big <laughs> yeah. movie, man. That was like I yeah, and I yeah. was like was the henchman movie. with Mackenzie Crook and we were like the, the baddies in it, but with the two henchmen and we didn't know who was gonna be the main baddie. Like, because on a Steven Spielberg, you're kind of like the last to know. Do you know what I mean? We were like, who's going to play Red Rackham? I mean, what's going on? And then lo and behold, it was Daniel Craig. And then before I knew it, (laughs) two weeks later, I'd been shoved up against the wall by James Bond himself. And (laughs) it was was amazing. But Nick Frost and Simon Pegg were in it. Yeah. um, Yeah, it was a great cast. A great cast. And the thing about it, because it was... you know, because of the technology and everything that was involved in it, you had like it was it was in one studio because you don't need sets; it's all there in the rommed into the computer. But you had row and row upon row of technicians, and it was like a shuttle launch or something. It was incredible. <laughs> but because of because of what it what it was, you would get these incredible actors. Like because we filmed it in LA, You'd be like, I'm standing there, and there's like Mackenzie's giving me a nudge in my ribs, and I'm like, what? What's going on? And there was like Tom Cruise at the monitor, like came down, and then the next day it was Clint Eastwood, and it was just like, this is just, wow. this is just insane, you know? <laughs> and we we're all dressed in these funny suits, looking like overgrown spurs, <laughs> <Yeah>. ridiculous. <laughs> all right, Clint, how you doing? <laughs> yeah, I don't really want to go talk to him dressed like this. <laughs> I was going to say, did some of that Italia Conti, um, th- what you'd learnt there, help with that? You know, obviously with yeah. the caption stuff, because you know you're using your body and more, obviously more physical. Yeah, I'm, I've, I, you know, the physicality of a character is absolutely key, isn't it? It's like how does he walk? I mean, you know, everything's key, isn't it? How does he? What does he sound like? What's his dialect? But particularly, like a physicality of something is, is. Um, really important to me and a lot of the time when I'm doing stage work you know I often make the characters I play really really physical um I've just I mean I do remember doing a I mean Andy Circus was next level and I do remember I had to have a fight scene with Andy at the climax of the film I think we're on top of a crane and I get thrown from it and um I do remember, like, doing this fight scene with Andy Circus, and it was just like, wow, he's really going for it. We're just in the rehearsal, you know, we're just sort of working it through with the moves. And I'm like, you know, he's pulling me up, he's throwing me over there, and I was like, oh, I've got to kind of keep up with him. And then, and then we completed the fight, and we'd choreographed it, and then it was like, right, let's go and show it in front of Stephen. Well, if he was at 85, he took it to 150. <laughs> I was like, I mean, he does not hold back, but... You just got to throw yourself into it, yeah. Oh, I love that. Uh, if so, if it's been amazing talking to you, Danny. Thank you so much. I've got one more question. And I'm going to do my usual thing of sort of bringing the mood down on the pod, which is what I normally do. Um, yeah. But obviously, it's called blank. So I, I was wondering, have you had any moments where things have gone blank for you, either on set or on stage, and how have you sort of got through them? And would what, maybe what would your advice be to anyone that? Maybe well, I, bl- I have literally blanked on stage. Like I've literally dried, um, but you, I, you're not you're not talking about that, are you? Um, well, it could be if you want. Yeah. 
I, do you want me to talk about that? Yeah. I've never tried. I've never tried in my life, ever. Um, <laughs> what's doing there? I told Ian Wright this story. That's why it's still rolling around in my head. I told Ian Wright this story because he was like, how do you remember How do you remember all your lines? And I went, well, it's, you, want, you know, it's that thing of it seeping through to your long memory, Ian, isn't it? And it's like, and it's, it's a lot easier also on stage because if you pick a prop up on that particular line, that will trigger something. And, yeah. And I was doing a play called The Red Lion. It was written by the brilliant Patrick Marber. It was a football play. Oh, yeah. Um, and I was playing, it's all about a non-league football team. It's three characters. The shady manager that I was playing, the ageing kit man, Peter White, and um, a young, brilliant footballer that comes into their lives, played by Calvin Denver. And... Um, as you know from this podcast, I like a name drop, but I've always like when I'm doing a when I'm doing a play, I always say to the stage manager, is it and we were doing it at the National Theatre, you know, it was a big thing. Yeah. And I <laughs> saying because it gets kind of tedious long runs of plays and you know, you've got to perform it every night and et cetera, et cetera. And I always say to the stage manager, is there anyone in? Is there any is there any faces? You know what I mean? And um and she was like, oh, what, do you like to know? I went, yeah, I do like to. I, I'm just, I like to know it's in the audience. And she said, uh, um, beginning of the second act, I come on, I'm drenched in rain in a hat and coat, and, I, and I'm all on my own on stage, and I get a mobile phone out, and the first line is, Mac, it's Jim. That was the opening dialogue to the second act. And uh, so I'm in the interval, in the wings, getting ready, blah, 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 and I go, um, is anyone in, Joni? And she goes, Someone is in. It was a matinee as well. And she says, you never guess who's in. She said, Danny Boyle's in. I went, you're kidding me. Wow. Oh, Danny Boyle's in. I went, Danny Boyle's in the audience. It's fantastic. Cut to me then going on, green light. I go on, rain, get the mobile phone out, gone, completely dried. Because I wasn't concentrating. I was thinking about Danny Boyle in the audience, wasn't I? And I couldn't, for the life of it, I just, it just went, I blanked. And I was like, Oh, oh. And I'm going, it'll come to me. Didn't come to me. And then I start to panic. Then I start to pace. And then I'm like, and I look, and all the, the, all the wings go, what are you doing? What are you doing? And it's like, <laughs> do I call for a line? Do I go off? Do I start again? And I just remembered the intonation of the line, but I didn't know, I couldn't remember the name Mac. And um, I just sort of fumbled this. The, the, I, went, I sort of went mm, mm, mm. <laughs> and then I, I just sort of carried on and uh, it was but all I was going was like Danny Boyle was just sitting there watching you dry oh, terribly um, but often with those things you come off stage and it's like did you notice I did this wrong or that wrong and the audience go didn't have a clue yeah you know so cancel and continue yeah it's often in our own yeah, it's all in our own heads, these yeah. things, isn't it? We think we've yeah. ruined, we've ruined the entire play or performance or whatever it might be, and actually, it's just that one tiny little moment. But I guess as as creatives, we we take we we, we notice that one bad bit and yeah, don't about all the good bits. But it is it's a it is a horrible moment when you're standing there and and it, and you dry. Yeah, it's not. It's it's. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. It's a horrible thing to go through. So, do you enjoy? Live performance. You perform, do you enjoy oh, yeah. plays? Because it, what, I mean, to bring it back round to what we first started talking about, the football, it's, I used to love playing football as a kid and that, that feeling of, 
you know, it's in the moment, it's live. Theatre will always give you that. I mean, I recently did a production of The Dumb Waiter at the Old Vic with another acting hero of mine, David Thewlis, who's a just a next-level yeah, brilliant yeah. guy and phenomenal talent. And um, I actually hadn't done a play for five years. Um, so we rehearsed for three weeks, and we, we only did five performances, and it was, you know, socially distanced audience and everyone in masks and all the rest of it. But... We did, we did a run, the first run through we did in rehearsals, and I remember finishing it because it's a brilliant play anyway. It's only like an hour long, it's a one act play. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I've missed this. To hmm. sustain, I don't know whether it's because, you know, we're all on Zoom and we're all on Twitter and it's social media and our attention spans seem to be shortening. Um, I don't, I think mine is anyway, but it was that thing of being mm. given that opportunity again to sustain a character over a long period of time, which is the thing I really missed. And I'm itching to get back on the stage now. I've really missed it. Yeah. Yeah. Something I about love it. That, that live connection, I think, with an audience and, and, and yeah. other people. I was just going to say it's, it, it, it's probably a good, a good thing that Danny Boyle wasn't wearing an orange beanie. I think in that moment. Yeah. Been, <laughs> then I would have been in trouble. Yeah. With a huge beard. Yeah. My dog's chasing a tail again. <laughs> oh. Danny, it's, it's been a such joy. a pleasure. Oh, no, and you guys, I really enjoyed it. Thank, yeah, thank you so much really for coming on. I appreciate it. Pleasure. Um, yeah, it's been great. go danny mays on the blank podcast what a top man just fascinating insight into the uh, into sort of the acting technique especially that improv stuff uh but some great anecdotes as well some great stories yeah uh, danny day lewis thing absolutely <laughs> god uh, imagine brilliant. walking out on stage to what probably the, his like, i don't know like the greatest british actor of all time i, could, I would yeah. put him up there as a in a bright orange beanie <laughs> yeah. I, can, I can imagine it I can, i'm actually like imagining it in my yeah. head so yeah but uh, danny what a top man thank you so much for joining us so just um yeah absolutely fascinating could have listened to him talking about uh, the Mike Lee stuff um, for hours. It was yeah, fascinating. Yeah, it really was. Really, really great insights, and 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 it was very candid as well. So uh, we appreciate that, um, Danny. And um, yeah, just fascinating stuff. And he's in so much good stuff. Uh, just check out Danny's work. I mean, he's got an incredible body of work. The stuff he's been in. So yeah, please do go and seek out anything that Danny's in. Generally, if Danny's in it, it's a good show. Absolutely. And and in fact, to to end on a football cliches you know i like to do uh, and we were talking earlier weren't we about the highs and lows of football but, i mean danny is incredibly consistent you yeah know, like like a good footballer like an ian wright mm. he's just consistent with his work and quality of it so uh as you say if if, if he's in it it's going to be good so do go and uh, check him out mm, absolutely well thank you to danny for being our guest today it was a real privilege to talk to you um if anyone wants to get in touch with us they can you can tweet us. You can send us Instagram abuse. Um, you can com- converse with us on Facebook um, at the same place. And the handle is at blank pod. It is. And um, I'm not going to bother to suggest you email us because no one ever does. We haven't had an email in years. So, no. Uh, but we probably should promote the patron. If you want to hear more, if you're listening on the public feed, we have got more from Danny available on our 
Patreon. Uh, so go to that. It's patreon.com forward slash blank podcast, P-A-T-R-E-O-N slash blank podcast for some bonus, exclusive, extra, whatever you want to call it, content uh, from Danny and all our guests as well. So do go check that out. Um, it's $5 a month. So whatever, Bargain. It's like £4.50 in English or whatever, wherever you're listening from, uh, which is nothing really a month for bonus content from all our fantastic guests. And you get a day earlier. And you get it a day earlier, yeah. Exactly. Without any of so, the annoying adverts in it as well. Without adverts. It's, God, there's so many reasons to sign up. It's just, it's, it's insane. And it's so, it's just what a bargain. Yeah. What a bargain. Plus, you, um, you so, get to support us and can... So, and you're helping the, yeah, keeping the show going it, as well. Yeah. So exactly. We, yeah. So we love our patrons. We love, we absolutely... We love all uh, our listeners. We do love all our listeners. Yeah, I'm actually going to read a patron's name out. Should we, should we read yeah, name out? Because yeah. We do love our patron. We do love our listeners, but our patrons in particular, we absolutely love them. So here goes. Uh, thank you to Maddie Lightfoot. Thank you, Maddie. There you go. You're I might the do that more of trust. often. You've, yeah, read out the circle regular. of trust. I might do that more often, read out our patrons, because we I do appreciate so. their support. So there's another uh, bonus. You get your name read out on the podcast. Get your name. Names are already in the um, show notes, Yeah, but... Uh, I'm going to start doing a bit more random name calling out on the mm. name, name calling name shout out <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, <laughs> uh, on the podcast. So yeah, mm. another reason to, to sign up to the bank patron. Yes. Thank you so much. What a great episode. Another wonderful episode. And uh, I'm always sad when it's the end, but I know I'm also happy that I know that the next week there will be another episode. Indeed. We'll be back with you next week. Uh, Tuesday morning. If you're, a member of the public who we love Monday morning. If you are a patron member who we also love slightly more, but anyway, uh, either way, have a great week, whatever you're doing, stay safe, take care. And we'll see you again next week on the blank podcast. Be kind. Thank you.